Thanks, Ryan. Can, is the sound okay? Can you hear me? Um, thank you. It's so great to be here, and thank you for coming. I know it's hard after dinner to come back out into the night. Um, there's some wine in the back for those of you who, who uh, need it, want it. Um, we were talking the other day at breakfast, I think, about the worst thing about being 20 and being an artist. And, um, and we all had horror stories, but I think the, the sort of common thread that was so interesting was that for all of us, it was like we, we knew we sort of ached to be sublime, you know, and we sort of ached to be artists, but we didn't know who we were, and the work we did wasn't the work we knew was the work we wanted to do. And um, so I thought I'd read this story, which is a little bit about that time. And as I was saying earlier, it's also about a time too far gone for most people here even to remember, which is um, the age before pornography was on the internet. <laughs> so it's kind of a historical piece. That <laughs> Francis Bacon. In the early 80s, I often spent afternoons at Bob's house, which is what everyone called the 20,000-square-foot Beaux-Arts mansion on East 67th Street, said to be the largest private residence in Manhattan. There were always women there, always called girls, and Leia looked like all of them to me, soft, fat, 17-year-old, eager-to-please mouth-breathers who signed their contracts with made-up first names and requested for their takeout lunch, classic Americans from Burger Heaven. Having grown up poor in a small town myself, just three or four years ahead of Leia and her ilk, I felt the pinch of proximity as we strove upstream together toward what I hoped would be a vast gulf between these girls and me. Meanwhile, I lived in terror of becoming one of them. To guard against losing my edge, I hoped to become a writer. I'd refused to take a serious job, preferring the professional twilight zone of the men's magazine industry. The vulgarity of the writing assignments didn't bother me. I imagined myself in the position of the Isaac Babel character in his story Guy de Maupassant and considered myself lucky that with my English major and 30 words per minute, I hadn't been forced to become a gopher at a fashion magazine. I also enjoyed Bob's blurred, autocratic presence his white shirt unbuttoned to the belt of his shark-skin slacks, the chains around his neck, the long, gray chest hair. His empire was worth $300 million that year, and he was nearly at the height of his power to shock. At that time, I needed little apart from interesting experience in order to live. While working for Bob, I subsisted on fancy lunches paid for in company script and free cocktails and hors d'oeuvres at openings for artists the company knew. My responsibilities entailed exactly what we were doing on this day, traveling across town to Bob's house, listening to Bob's orgiastic creative direction, then putting words in the mouths of babes. Later, from a gray carpeted cubicle on Broadway near Lincoln Center, I would create implausible erotic monologues based on improbable true life experiences that suggested unspeakably childish innocence, the slight resistance one might encounter parting a raw silk curtain in the dark, accompanied by some subtle but binding statement of adult acquiescence. 
what better training for a writer than inventing little stories, arousing a casual reader with ordinary language, thrillingly unspooled. The story arc was simple, sexual, foreplay, action, climax, denouement. Not that I suppose the men who read our magazine required much in the way of denouement. Most of them probably closed the book once they spunked. The magazine took great pains, wasted, to expose corporate, gr corporate crimes and cover-ups. We hated cover-ups. We published the steamier fictions of Roth and Oates. Working for Bob made me feel like a real writer, commissioned, dared. Give me 24 hours, and I could give you a story about a lonely co-ed and a washing machine that could leave you breathless and satisfied. <laughs> Exposure to Bob's antiquities and follies had awakened my capacity for judgment. I felt contemptuous of every lapse in his taste, the carved marble toilets, the glazed fabrics, the white piano, the gallons of guilt. My own shotgun flat, which I shared with my old college friend Mira, contained no furniture we hadn't plucked from the street. It was here in this studio with its cold radiators and scuttling cockroaches where I did my real work late at night, brutally scribbling over fresh drafts of my austere prose poems. We traveled by taxi across the park to 67th Street, an executive, a graphic designer, and a writer. Inside the townhouse, we waited for Bob. We always waited. We waited for hours. It was Bob's dime. We were Bob's army, the pornographer's pornographers. <laughs> Sometimes we waited all day while topless females cavorted with eunuchy-looking men in European bathing suits by the Roman-style swimming pool, which had been carved out of several venerable rooms. Or we sat in Regency chairs arranged around a fireplace whose panels consisted of decorative carvings of six-breasted women. Sometimes we waited until we saw Bob and his girlfriend Kathy dressed for the evening, descending the stairs and leaving by the front door. Bob's face, before the cosmetic surgery, was sculpted into marble columns along the stairs. And the wall sconces that illuminated the way up to Bob's office were, or at least looked very like, molded testicles of glass. <laughs> When we arrived, Leah, the girl woman we were going to give away in a contest, was waiting too, surrounded by the usual surplus of yellow-eyed men in their 50s and 60s, dyspeptics drinking seltzer water. One of these men immediately offered Leah a weekend in East Hampton. She slid off one strappy sandal, tucked a bare foot under her round bottom, and leaned toward her interlocutor. Is that on the beach? she asked. When she saw our trio, she lit up as if she could have any idea of who we were and said, Hi, I'm Leah. The creative team introduced ourselves. Then Ernie, the leering butler, appeared with a tray of vodka drinks. Leah asked for a can of tab. From another room, or possibly some kind of intercom system, I heard someone say, Put that nipple up again, or I'll have to come over and put it up for you. I resented waiting, dogged by the feeling that I had more important work to do, but Leia seemed to be enjoying herself the way a hunter enjoys oiling his gun or the way a whale enjoys breaching. 
We drank our drinks. Leia deployed her long hair as she turned the beam of her attention from one yellow-eyed man to the other, which I mentally filed. Sorry. One yellow-eyed man to the other. Stray bits of her monologue escaped, which I mentally filed for future use. Capricorn, unicorn, 19, calligraphy. Bob eventually sent word via Ernie, and we ascended the stairway of faces and testicles. He stood for Leia and took her hand. Bob saw himself as an innovator, an idea man, a feminist. He liked to establish this right away. I've arguably done more to advance the class, the status of working class women than Betty Friedan or Gloria Steinem, he said. Absolutely, said Bob's girlfriend, Kathy. Bob had met Kathy, a brilliant dancer with a background in finance and science, at a men's club in London in 1969, the same year he launched his magazine. Entranced by her beauty and talent, he had bribed his way backstage to her dressing room, where they discussed nuclear fusion. Now, Bob and Kathy were funding a team of 85 scientists to work round the clock in New Mexico. Bob was investing $20 million in a casino and a nuclear power plant. His seemingly unlimited capital from the profits of his magazine, where his innovations to the print centerfold had made him rich, rich, rich. Bob spoke generally to the room, continuing his feminist theme. We were the first to show full frontal nudity, the first to show pubic hair, genital penetration. We remain the innovators and the leaders. We push the sexual revolution forward. Bob looked the way he always looked, blurred, boyish, reddish, and old, his white silk shirt unbuttoned to his belt. You are all a part of it, Bob told us, spreading his arms to include Leia, Kathy, a few cretinous men, the creative department, even the paintings on the walls, the Picassos, the El Grecos. We were all a part of it. One of the themes of his expensive art collection was naturally flesh, some of which I recognized from my survey course in art history. Bob owned a number of those fantastically macabre still lifes of Kaim Soutine, flayed rabbits and ducks hanging upside down, pools of blood spilling out among the crystal wine glasses, decanters, and blood oranges. But today, Bob had a new enthusiasm, the painter Francis Bacon. I had never heard of him. A bacon leaned against a wall. We stood around it, looking down. In the center of the painting, a lone figure howled to the point of implosion. Bacon, Bob said, didn't paint seriously until his late 30s. You know why? He was looking for a subject that could consume his attention. That's it, the figure, the orifice. Our magazine is literally inspired by these ideas. It's vivid and bold, and it's all about opening up the figure. I want a woman who doesn't simply lie naked representing a woman. I want to make photographs that immediately connect the viewer with the sensation of being in the presence of this woman. I'm not interested in the woman. She can mean whatever she wants herself to mean. What interests me is the sensation produced by the photograph. Leia looked studiously at the painting as if it might teach her how to be. Even Kathy's Rhodesian Ridgeback sniffed around the bacon. Leia tripped on her head, heels, avoiding one of the dogs, and Bob reached out to grab her. The canvas sighed and fell to the rug. 
One dog, quivering, escaped from beneath. Bob picked up the painting and leaned it back against the wall. Don't worry, he said. It's art canvas. It's strong. We sat, finally, at an oval table overlooking a platter of raw meat arranged artfully around a bowl filled with toothpicks. Bob got to the point. With all this in mind, I want to run a contest. Two weeks in Rio or Paris, someplace like that. Leia's the grand prize. Kathy slowly raised a cube of meat in the air. The Rhodesian Ridgebacks trembled with anticipation, then broke into competition. Bob turned his soft, blurred eyes on Leia and said, The contest will be tastefully done. Leia nodded encouragingly at Bob. Of course, of course, tastefully done. My job, Bob explained, would be to help shape the story in such a way as to eliminate any tawdry elements. Leia and I would spend an hour together in the Red Room in conversation from which I would extract her adorable essence, her hopes and her dreams, which would appear in the promotional material. One of the Cretans handed me a press kit which contained Leia's resume, a high school report card, her height, 5'2", her measurements, 35, 25, 35, and her ambitions to model and to act. Bob and Kathy left us to go have dinner at an Italian restaurant famous for its lewd murals and pasta puttanesca. After dinner, Bob and Kathy would stop by some wealthy industrialist's house for half an hour, as long as Bob ever stayed at a gathering. He had a phobia about being kidnapped and held for ransom. And also, he had little in the way of conversation. But this going out into the evening and coming home at 9 or 10 was one of the great things, I thought, about Bob. He didn't hang out with the other porn kings. He lived and socialized right on East 67th Street and was rather abstemious in his habits. Interviewing Leia was like being tended to by a friendly paid person. We sat together in the Red Room with the soundtrack to Last Tango in Paris piped in like a gas. Ernie brought us cheeseburgers from Burger Heaven still in their styrofoam containers, which I resented, although I ate mine. Leia plucked at hers. It was too rare. She told me about Texas and later Arkansas, about her one-eyed mother and her generous and encouraging stepfather, about her scarlet fever and teenage rebellion, about her early talent as an artist, about being selected for a local car dealership commercial when she was only 13. She sat on her bare feet on the red silk couch and leaned toward me, flirty and confidential. Tell me who you know I should get close to. I almost know I have ESP, but I can't trust myself because my spirit is so open. <laughs> Later, after leaving Bob's house for the day, I met my roommate, Mira, and her new boyfriend, Amir, at the Russian Tea Room. We ate blini and caviar and drank ponies of iced vodka and samovars of tea on Amir's expense account. Afterward, Mira went to the flamboyant penthouse with Amir. They called each other Amira. I refused a cab to main sobriety and economy and walked home. I stayed up all night writing Leia's story about an ambitious and talented calligrapher with non-threatening ESP who dreams of becoming an actress and discovers her sexuality at 15 on a 747 to Rome. <laughs> In composing, I entered a fugue state. 
I realize that choice and freedom are not necessarily optimal conditions for work and that the most confining, restricting, and repulsive situations sometimes open themselves up to be investigated like the terrifying orifices within the figures of Bacon. From this black hole of desire that yawns within us all, I heard Leia's small, hopeful voice bubble up and simply wrote down what it said. When I returned the next day to Bob's house with my story, I found Leia outside the red room sitting at the white piano playing Baby Elephant Walk to a swarm of middle-aged men who hoped to screw her. <laughs> she wore a halter dress short enough to reveal a fresh hematoma on her thigh and expensive gold hoops in her ears. Her hair had a metallic sheen. I thought of the way crows are drawn to foil in their black winters, and that this flirtation, which might lead to anything, to sex or marriage or death, was not a fantasy for Leia. It was the real life. It was what she did. She used her body the way I hope to use my imagination, wantonly. She may have known already that the men, the men she was flirting with couldn't really help her. They were sleazy, salaried men from Mamaronek or Babylon for whom the endless stream of young women like Leia, or like me for that matter, was a job perk. Many of them weren't even straight or single, just curious. Flirting with Leia or having sex with her was part of a fantasy or charade while real life marched on in shadows behind the screens. Within a few years, many of these men would be dead of AIDS, caught and frozen in the common imagination by the stigmata of livid sarcomas on their faces and the backs of their hands. It was as if Francis Bacon saw that future waiting, named it in bright colors and abstracted figures, nailed it. Before I saw the Bacon paintings, I thought of the barrier between charade and real life as an ironic principle that young, attractive aspirants might transcend with much, without too much difficulty, like the velvet rope at the door of a nightclub. Imagine Leia, for example, who got everything she wanted, a small, temporary fame made possible by men and her own amenable sexuality. She became an actress, married a producer, lived for a period in a yacht off Scopolos, divorced, moved to London, and died at 32, discreetly, of a disease she wouldn't name. That night, I read the tale, the fictobiography she and I had made up together, to Leia and Kathy and Bob. The three of them softened around the mouth as they listened, and afterwards said how beautiful it was. Bob said, this is what I do. I take a young woman of charm and talent and give her a chance to reach her potential. <laughs> Kathy fed a cube of beef to the dogs and said more pragmatically to Leia, see what you can get out of it. We often boasted of how the first black Miss America had profited handsomely from the exposure our magazine had given her. Bob showered Leia and me with script to the copa, and I wantonly imagined the Veracruz snapper I'd command. Impossible to go to the copa alone. I was more than ready to wait another hour for Leia, who continued to discuss details of the contest with Bob and Kathy and make new connections and arrangements with other men, working with more passion and intensity and for longer hours than I ever did. 
While waiting for Leia outside the Roman pool, I flipped through a catalog from a retrospective of Bacon's work at the Metropolitan Museum and read about how the artist squandered his time until he knew he could be serious, until he found a subject that could hold his attention. I studied photos of his London studio, the liquor boxes, the knee-high trash, the paint cans and brushes, the broken mirrors, the accumulation of thousands of images Bacon would pluck from the ankle-deep soup that functioned for him like an unconscious mind. The mess had a willful quality I admired. It excluded everyone but the artist himself, who had to work in self-imposed conditions that nearly rendered work impossible. Bacon's detritus boasted of his promiscuity, his gambling, the chronic messes he made by seizing every scrap of life that might serve his discipline. I ripped a, pe- I, I ripped a photo of Bacon's studio from the catalog and laid it on the pile of company script. The script looked like play money or like a child's certificate of achievement. We'd use it all, Leia and I. We'd eat and drink and make a little mess of the evening. With a fuzzy resolution born of several ounces of Russian vodka and a gnawing hunger, I promised the ladies of the multiple tits that one day I'd tell their stories too. Sometime later, a dry finger touched my face with the slightest threat of a fingernail, as if I'd been chosen at random to play some brutal competitive sport. Thank you.